Welcome to Boots Off Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business. A show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David and I'll be your host for the show. Today, I'm welcoming Matt Dart from DBAG. Um, welcome, Matt. Uh, thanks, David. Thanks for having us. Um, Matt and I met at a conference. I think, Matt, Fremantle, is that correct? It was. Fremantle correct? Grain Growers Innovation Generation, I believe. Well, there um, you go. About 2011, I reckon. Yeah, it seems like an eternity ago, but just like yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like yesterday. So, what, 11 years ago. Yeah, and and, and at that conference, Matt, had told the story of his um, farm business, DBAG. And um, I've told, and I was really impressed with what Matt had done with his um, business partners at the time. And I've told that story so many times to other people um, in the context of it being a different type of family business structure and story that, that most people have in Australia. So today in the podcast, we're going to be talking to Matt about a bit about his background, but also we want to talk, open up and share that story of DBAG. I'm really interested in digging on that whole thing about, so, you know, you had your generations come before you and and, and the, the common to, I think, nearly everyone listening, these succession challenges, yeah? So, and you saw those challenges and and wanted to do things a little differently. Yeah, look, it, and it took a little bit of time too, though. Like, I was working away, uh, my my parents had encouraged me to go to university or to at least do something, a skill outside of farming rather than just return straight to the family farm. So I headed off to Sydney to, um, to do a, a degree in, in economics and started out with the vision of actually being an accountant and discovered quite mm-hmm. quickly that that wasn't probably the vocation for myself and, and changed to ag economics and finished off at Sydney Uni uh, with a degree in, in ag echoes. And, and then actually just sort of fell into a banking career actually out of that. I was pretty keen on staying in Sydney at that point in time. I was a bit of a mad mad cricketer and I was enjoying playing grade up there in Sydney and thought I wouldn't mind doing this for a little bit longer and was quite enjoying the metro lifestyle. So I uh, got a job with uh, Westpac and, and did three years with them uh, for initially in, in economic policy with them, uh, with Barry Buffier and, and the team up there at, uh, at Westpac and, and learned a lot actually, a very different uh, to obviously not a lot of numbers involved, a lot of policy type decisions, um, presenting to the board in mm. relation to all sorts of things. And so it was, I look back on it now, I was probably quite privileged actually at a young age to, to be able to do that. And yeah. and then by absolute, I don't know, by design or by the, the guys looking down at me, smiling or frowning possibly, I ended up in uh, doing computer training. So I rolled out laptops to all the managers in Westpac in uh, in the early days of, of computers and, and going away from cash books into into spreadsheets and and I was tasked with driving around the countryside me and a couple of other guys and giving these laptops to these 50 to 60 year old managers and going right this is the future and this is what you need to use in your job and so I look back <laughs> on it now and go wow uh, the mission impossible no doubt about it and and but what they did for me Westpac and and I'm internally grateful is that they they put me through a, a train a train course and I learned how to to public speak actually and um, mm. and uh, yeah which was Anton Schoderbeck was the, the guy's name I'll never forget it and and he taught me a lot about how to express myself which actually interestingly in my professional life 
has been one of the more powerful tools I've had, not just to talk at conferences, but when you're speaking to investors, banks, you know, prospective business partners and all these type of people that you run into through your career. The ability, most people, especially people who are very confident in their profession, but their ability to communicate that, and I was no different. Like I knew how to, I knew numbers and I knew management accounting and financial accounting and tax law and all these things that I'd learned at university. But the ability to express them was zero because they don't teach you that at uni. They just, you just learn. Yeah. And so it was quite an interesting phase there. And then I ended up in agribusiness lending where I, where I saw my, uh, my career developing uh, with Westpac and then ended up out in uh, regional Australia, ended up out at uh, Wag- uh, Albury actually with Westpac and then had an opportunity to be a part of the PIBA, now Rabo network as they decentralised out of Sydney. So, and opened up the Wagga office with a couple of other guys there and, and, spent, and spent seven years with them building a, building a portfolio out of the, out of the Wagga office and, and had a great time. It was a very, very uh, positive time in banking. PIBA bought um, a 15-year interest-only product to the market, which was very unique. They bought specialised agribusiness lending to the market and in a very much retail dominated dominated space and it was it wasn't easy it, we had a lot of inquiry but converting making people are very they review change but their capacity to change is always challenging and so yeah but over a, a seven-year period um, enjoyed great success in a in relation to building a book and then consolidating a book and, and saw the team at, at the Walker office grow from from a couple of us through to about eight, I think it was, when, we, when I left and still keep in touch with those guys. And, and, the, and today the Rabo brand is, is still pretty solid out there in the, in the east and west alike, I would imagine. So, but, yeah, a really, really interesting time in my career. Yeah. So, Matt, it's it's probably a little bit more common with, the, what I'd say, the current generation taking over farm businesses, but of our generation, I'd call us and <laughs> Matt and I are similar age, it would have been uncommon for someone to start farming like you did with what would have been this quite amazing background in or this deep understanding, especially in agribusiness banking and managerial finance. And you, you saw the sort of like the, the one of the um, really big working engines of agribusiness before you went farming. So what lessons did you really take from that time in banking that really made you see farming differently maybe to your peers when you eventually did go farming again? Yeah, look, I look back at that now and it's, it's a great question because as a 30-year-old, and I think I was 30 neat when, when I started farming, is it because I'd witnessed and PIBA had been very selective in their client base and had really stringent criteria in the early days and they really did bank the top end, the top 20%. You know, everyone says it, but they actually did it. Their criteria was really quite strict to be a client in those days. And so I'd seen a lot of great balance sheets and a lot of great P&Ls and, and I just thought, right, I know the recipe to farming. And I strode mm. into farming. Success was a given. That's where I saw myself because I'd seen other people doing what appeared to be quite simplistic things, growing wheat, having a few sheep or growing a bit of rice or whatever it was. They seemed to do it very easily. But these were highly developed businesses and underneath agriculture, under the bravado of, of what you see on the surface or what's portrayed in the media, is quite a massively complex array of decision-making processes which, which there's no textbook for. So when I went farming, I thought, right, oh, this is going to be easy. 2002, I started farming and, and in the east of the country, that was possibly the driest year ever on record. And it, it just, 
unpacked itself so differently to the way I thought it was going to. And at the end of 2002, I'd obviously walked away from a, an established career in finance and put myself and, and my, my then wife into harm's way, financially speaking. And I couldn't undo it. We were sort of stuck. And we were traditional farming. So where ZBAG didn't start until 2007. So from 2002 through to 2007, my wife and I were traditional farming, mum and dad farming, block of land, mortgage, so on, so on, so on, and off you go, we'll give you an overdraft, and you sow the crop, and then you harvest it, and, and so it goes. And I'd witnessed my family, uh, my next generation up family partnership come undone in the, in the late 90s, and that, had, and that had unfolded, and my mum and dad were then farming on their own. And so I knew that farming with them wasn't the right thing to do, so we didn't do that or what I felt wasn't the right thing to do. And so Sam and I, my wife and I, were farming on our own. And it's interesting, you look at, okay, so by 2007 we'd had four droughts out of five goes and um, and financially speaking things weren't trundling very well. I was very thankful that my wife had a full-time job and, and that's how we put food on the table. We'd had a couple of kids during that period as well, adding uh, additional uh, burdens to our, to our lives, as joyous as they are. And um, but and so we got to 2007, and the story wasn't absolutely going any way, shape, or form in the way I thought it would. And so, and I found myself mm-hmm. in a, in a pretty pretty bad place, really. In the, the mid 2007s, it was at the point in time where is that all these things had manifested themselves. It was like the world telling me not to farm, and so I sort of had mm-hmm. to assess. And one of the best things that happened to me, it got. It got that dire at the end of 2007. I thought, I've got to get a job. Like, I really, this, we de-stocked. We weren't growing anything. There was no crop. And I said, right, I need to get a job. So off I went. I rang a mate of mine in Wagga, and he said, I've got a job for you. We've got a guy who wants to build a, uh, an Indian chappie by the name of D.D. Saxena who wants to build a canola crushing plant in Wagga. And they're doing a capital raise, and, you know, you can give them a hand to the, your skill set, you know, a bit of, bit of banking and, and a bit of farming. Really, really fits into this bill. So off I went. And met DD and and um, and took on a three month contract there to help him uh, do the capital raise for for this canola crushing plant in Wagga, which which now exists. It's called Robe River and Oils and Bioseeds and Bioenergy. Sorry. And so off I went, and it was the best thing because I got I removed myself from the business, and it gave me time. Obviously, I had to go to work every day, and and met some really interesting people, some individuals, high wealth individuals, um, you know, guys from. Rockefeller Rothschild and you know these type of Lotus Group and, and all these type of businesses who were looking marching around the world looking to invest in these type of projects. But the, one of the best things personally for me and for the business was I got outside it and I could look at it and get back from from where I was involved with this spiral of everything I touched seemed to explode because 2007, as you know, we had a commodity hedge boom, not dissimilar to what we're seeing at the moment, actually. But we're on the wrong side of it. We didn't have the product, and we got hedge positions out of the money nastily, and and we had to unwind them, and and then the ability to redo them and, and re-hedge wasn't there because the companies had, had pulled out of those markets, AWB and the banks alike. And so, but it gave me time to reset and then review and, and reflect on that agriculture is still a viable a viable business. The world does need food and fibre, and so it's just we just need to do it differently. And so I started to look around at business models that were tried and true, really. And, and so one of them 
is I had a mate who is still my account today, so Pete at, um, at Bush and Campbell in downtown Wagga. And he'd gone through uni, got a degree, gone and done his you know professional year at Bush and Campbell. And I said, so what happened to you? And he said, well, you know, I did this and, and then I eventually become a, you know, a, you know, a director and a shareholder and, and there was this progress of how he developed equity in this business. He was still there and, and today is, is one of the principal directors and principals of that business. And I said, well, why don't we do that in, in agriculture? Why don't we collaborate and allow different businesses and people to develop their careers in what otherwise is a very asset-dominated career path allow them to build mm. equity in a business that they don't actually have to own the assets to be in. And so this is one of the cornerstones of Yeah, definitely. And, and that's, and that's. I mean, you're talking right back in 2007 here, Matt, but you think of now where, you know, asset or land prices in particular are just exorbitant, really. Mm. And you've got young people like yourself back in 2007, uh, you know, trying to enter or, or expand into the industry. And maybe the barriers to enter is even higher again, aren't they, to oh, try and build absolutely. that career? You look at it now and you go, so you wake up tomorrow and you're living in Sydney and you go, I want to be a farmer. And once you investigate a little, even if your skill set is 100% aligned to being a farmer, you may be the greatest farmer ever. And I, and I would argue this as an industry, that we are precluding a lot of good farmers from our industry because mm. of the asset yeah. nature of it. Now, whether that be, and you can make that argument for a lot of industries, but generally speaking, most industries are knowledge-driven. So if you want to be a brain surgeon and you're smart enough and you go and do the training, your wealth position doesn't play any part in that other than being able to fund yourself yeah. through uni, I guess. And in Australia, we're fortunate we've got a government that support people to go to uni without actually any money. Yet in farming, how do you become a farmer? Now, you can certainly go and work for a corporate. You could work for a... Waikiri or, or so on and, and develop a farming background there but then the ability to step out of that into actually principally farming yourself, taking an actual risk in farming is near on impossible yeah. and and I, you, you're dead right. Yeah, so you're saying there's this strong link between wealth, you know it's, no, it's not just ability, it's ability plus wealth or well, wealth first then hopefully ability. Wealth first, absolutely and you go right oh, so now I've got all this wealth and some of it's inherited, some of it's made, however it's come about uh, but generally speaking most people who have made money out of farming have generally started with the wealth cornerstone. Now that be the family farm generally speaking and they've built on that. The challenge would be and if this sector of our, our industry had nothing to start with how would have it played out? Because as we all know, you know, and you talk, you read any book written by anyone who's been financially successful, the first million is the hardest one to make. After that, it gets easier. Mm. The next four is hard, the next five is easier, and then the next ten is easier after that. Because this asset development, especially with our land prices now, you buy a farm and it just goes up by itself. And I suppose you've got generational stuff. So we had generations enter farming, whether whichever district they are in Australia, and that was a different game again. So they were literally going out and clearing virgin country. You know, for you guys, it was out west part of the country, it was out east. And 
they're buying land for like I know the stuff out east in Western Australia. They're buying for ten cents an acre and going out and chaining Definitely. this country. And it was so the barriers to entry were very different, weren't they? It was very sweat equity, wasn't it? Back it then? is. It was just work hard and you'll be all good. And in our environment now, that is the pole. We're the polar opposite. I've seen land prices here locally double, if not triple, in the last three to four years. Like just outrageous yeah. numbers. And now some would say that they're not making any more of it. There's all these arguments around why it goes up and and why it doesn't go down and all these type of things. Interest rates have obviously been coming down, which has inflamed the market even more. But it, it does, I see us slowly going down the path of precluding more and more people from our industry with skill sets that would add value to our industry. Now, whether that be data management or any of these skills that are out there, which are unique to different industries other than agriculture, interestingly, like data management is a great one. Generally speaking, if you're training yourself to be a farmer, data management is not something you do. Now, you want to be an agronomist or... Mm. You know, go down the science path, a production-based training if you're going to do a university degree or something like And yet one of the big powers we have in our world, and you'd be well across this, is the power of data. And spending some guys, I spent a bit of time on the Sheep CRC and spent a bit of time with the data-to-data guys and the power of this, you know, automated learning type stuff. And so one of the things we're doing in our business as we speak actually is formulating what a data manager would look like for us and what the power of, yep. of, of that would be to the business. So sorry we got a bit in front of ourselves. <laughs> so, so Matt, let's just step back a bit. So it's really interesting. So we've got these unique challenges. So you had a set of challenges in between 2002 and 2007 and you went outside of ag, which I think is a great well, – we'll, we'll get into that a bit later. But I think you went outside of ag, you got perspective, you had a bit of um, banking background, you had some friends and you got perspective and you came back and go, let's do this differently. And I think I want to unpack that a bit more because this is a great story, you know, because there's um, everyone looks in ag and this is why I tell your story a lot. They think, okay, I've got to, you know, be born to a farm and then I've got to go home to the farm and borrow money and buy the farm next door and all this traditional, there's this, I suppose, assumed a model in ag. And what you've done is said, well, not necessarily so. You don't, there's not one model in ag. So, Let's talk about, okay, you went and did the work and you did the um, asset raise for the canola crushing plant and you came back and you go, let's do farming different. Let's talk about, I'd love to know, okay, so you went back and tell us what you did differently and how does it work, Matt? It's always one of these things, you look back and when did the decision get made? Like when did it happen? Obviously it did, but when did it happen? And if I was to pick a point in time and the guy who I started DB Ag with, Dave Bircham, and um, so he and his wife and myself and my wife um, were friends and, um, and they, Dave was working for Pioneer Seeds as a, as a seed salesman. Had a little farm just outside Wagga. He'd, he'd managed to, to secure a little irrigation block and I was farming away here at Area Park and he lived on the way home from Wagga where I was working and so I used to call in there and watch the footy on Friday night and, and it was a particular Friday night and we... We always used to love talking about business. Like he loved farming. I love farming. So we had a lot to talk about and it drove our wives to distraction and they'd just leave us and go, we're not taking part of this anymore. And in this one particular night, we started talking around how he wanted to take a principal risk farming. I was looking in on the business going, look, we need to. And one of the big things for me that I discovered about our world was we need to secure IP. Farming actually wasn't a production model. It was an intellectual property model. And this was the most important thing in our world, being able to secure good people who know how to make these myriad of subjective decisions. And the cornerstone of any functional team is trust. And I trusted Dave. 
And I went, righto, we can do this. And so, and I talked to Pete, my accountant, and he'd, he'd given me this model, this way to, to build an equity model without an asset base. And I went, righto. And I said, well, why don't we do this? And over the period of that night, that Friday night, we developed the concept of DBA. And he said, I reckon I can get Pioneer to allow us to be contractors, to sell seed for them. We, Dad and I had opened a retail business in Griffith some years before, with a small retail shop and sold produce um, as an off-farm activity. And they were, they were looking to get out of that um, and, and retire from farming. I retired from the off-farm businesses and then eventually retired from farming. And I said, I reckon there's opportunity here to, to lease mum and dads. And we had an investor lo- looking to expand their portfolio. And just by absolute coincidence at that time, AACL, which had developed in the West, Australian Agricultural Contracts Limited, had come up with this non-recourse capital model. And the, all the moons aligned for us. And somewhere during that night, we obviously made the conscious or subconscious decision possible to create this business. And we marched into Wagga the next week and I had a meeting with our solicitors and accountants. We drew up a trust deed, we executed it, and we took down $20. We put $10 each in and opened a bank account and away we went. And I remember marching, you know, we did a lot of background work. It took about another month or two after that. Negotiated lease agreements with investors and, and with mum and dad and obviously bought mum and dad out of the business in town convinced Pioneer, which was a DuPont company in those days, a big, giant beast of a thing, um, to allow us to, to act as a, as, a, as a subcontractor to sell seed for them and promote seed in, in the irrigation areas in, in the southwest of New South Wales. And all this happened and we were still trying to farm, we were still trying to maintain. And so it's somewhere in there, but it, if I was to pick a point in time, it was that, it was that Friday night. And, and then after that, it grew a little bit of a life of its own, to be honest and we were committed and, and off we went. And, and once we had the legal structure of the defined unit trust, which our, I'll be brutal here to the accounting fraternity, when I went down this path with the defined unit trust, they said, this is not a great tax model. You know, you can't move income around. You can't, there's nothing to do here. There's no gray area in a defined unit trust. You make the money, you get it. And one of the rules we set for our business is you must be an individual to be a unit holder in this business. And that was our number one rule. Yep. And so the people who are in the business. So no companies. No companies, no super funds, no family trusts, no nothing. You had to be an individual. Still today, that is the case. And it helped. And so, so, so why did you make that decision? We wanted the business to be able to traverse the end. All businesses, I believe, should review the end of the business, not the start of it. And when I reviewed the end of a business, which was a, say, partnership of, of discretionary trusts, the end is messy. We all know that. Where it's individuals, it is clear. And the great thing about what happened was that I always had the vision that people would come and go from this business. Individuals would come and go because goals change. People grow up, people get divorced, people die. All these things happen to people and we can't change that. And so it's how we act after that that matters in business. The business needs to continue on. So I wanted a so we had a corporate trustee and all those type of things to allow the business to be continuous. And that the people who own the business needed to be individuals. Now we've had over the journey, we have eight current owners in this business and we have exited six out of the business. So there's been 14 owners in the business over the journey since 2008. 
And the great thing about the model was that when it got tested, and when I mean tested is when people leave, is when it gets tested. Not when people come in. Coming in is easy because people will accommodate anything to be a part of something they want to do. It's when they're leaving that the model gets tested. And so when it, in 2016, when we had our first exit from the business, I remember sitting with Pete and the accountant said, righto, we're about to find out whether this, is, this actually works. And it just did. It just worked. The transition was seamless. To be fair, when we took the people leaving the business to the bank and said, righto, and it was, it was Alan Dave, the foundation unit holder, who's going to exit the business. And all they saw was succession issues. And family succession issues in banking are a giant red flag. We all know that because there's assets to be divided and people not doing anything and all these things happen in bad succession playouts. And, and I said, but it's fine. We've got all this covered off. We know what we're doing. It's going to be fine. They nodded, obviously, in the mind going, this is not going to play out well. And, but it did play out well. And the business did continue on and, and it, it didn't break stride. The business continued on. Which was, as it, as it turns out, probably one of the principal goals of the business was exactly that. And I knew that because I'd been looking back at, at my own upbringing and what had happened in our own family business and what I'd seen in banking. And I knew it was a principal risk for the business. It then evolved further than that. Then it, I said, right, well, this, that worked. We then started going, looking inside our businesses and the guys who are now becoming into ownership of this business and, and their partners are the people who are staff in the business. So all the current unit holders now in this business, other than myself and my wife, have worked in the business prior to becoming a unit holder. And it's allowing, I think one of the, the things that's been exciting now is that as the maturity of this business has come along is that one of the principal goals of it now, I believe, is to allow people who would not otherwise have the ability or the wealth, I guess, to take a principal risk in farming or in an agricultural business that opportunity within the confines of an acceptable risk profile. Obviously, you can go out and lease a farm and maybe do it a firm facility with a reseller and, and lay it all on the table and take a massive risk. Now, if it comes off, you look like a genius, but you can do damage to yourself that you won't recover from in a lifetime. Insolvency is, is real. So, so I'm going to try and summarise. I'm, trying to sum, I'm going to try and summarise this, Matt. So you had two um, properties of, of a particular size and you wanted to expand and, and build a more robust model. So you and your uh, friend came together and you created this uh, very discretionary unit trust, yeah? Or, yeah, uh, yeah, defined unit and, trust, yeah. And, and formed a business together that allowed you to share the business and expand the business uh, along with contracts with Pioneer and places like that. So it allowed you to build this bigger property and this bigger business together mm. and attract capital to this bigger business. But you didn't have to sell or you didn't have to leave home. Like you're, you're still farming in the district that you yeah, grew up we, in. We didn't go anywhere. Kids are still getting on the school bus. And so you're able to expand, essentially expand the family business without having to, to – but you could essentially do it together or share the risk and build essentially – you know, you could still make money and profit and all those things. Yeah, definitely. Look, because at the end of the day, if I wanted to work for a corporate and, and hold a general management job with a corporate, I would have stayed in Rabo. And so I did want to farm and I still do. I love farming. I love going out marking a few lambs and spraying a paddock and sowing it and harvesting it and all the things we do to, to output a, a commodity and to add to the, 
food supply of the world to be you know idealistic about it and so we enjoy that and so what i saw in in my banking career was that people who were good lenders for instance they'd get promoted into general management where they don't lend any money now they may or may not be a good general manager and they may or may not be happy and certainly for me as an individual (laughs) i wanted to farm and so i wanted the model yeah. Well, big decisions have to be made and meetings have to be gone to and capital needs to be raised. But at the end of the day, I still wanted to be a farmer. And so the idea of the model is that and the transition and, and the ultimate transition of this business will be when I'm not a director and still farming in it. So this allows you to no longer be a director, but you're still uh, – the thing is you can be a, an executive director or work, like you're a working a, partner yeah, in the business yeah. at the moment. Is there – yeah, so is there an opportunity to be a non-working partner in the business? Is that how the business is structured? Not, or Yeah, well, recently we have amended our, our unit holders agreement to allow that. And one of the principal things there was probably to allow the retirement of unit holders without actually withdrawing capital out. Yeah, so succession. So this is the big, Harry. Uh, we've already had a podcast on succession. It's, uh, I think, I don't know how many times in your farming career you've been to an event that talks about succession. It's like an endless period of events around succession because, and it's not just in farm business. I think just family business period, it's a big, hairy problem. It is. It's massive. How does DB Ag structure sole succession for you? You know, what flexibility does it give you that I'd say a traditional family farm just doesn't have or opportunities, I suppose, is what we'd like to explore? The, the cornerstone of it is we just separated the income and the assets. That's what we did. So we took the income and put it in one model, in the DB Ag model, and left all the assets to whoever owns them, whether it be my wife and I or my mum and dad or an overseas investor or a corporate, doesn't really matter who owns the assets. By separating those two streams, we then solve the problem of succession for us because I've seen the world change in relation to how farmers retire. So if you'd asked my father when he was 30, how are you going to retire? Well, I'll farm away and then when I've had enough and I'll sell the farm. And then that's my retirement fund. We've now seen that change to very much a European model where assets are held, not sold. And so I can see my wife and I, for instance, Sam and I not ever selling the farms and there'll be income streams Mm -hmm. for us going forward. So the model has changed and the attitude has changed. It does, farms still get sold, but they get probably sold for other reasons other than retirement. It's, it's interesting why farms get sold now. And so I think for one of the big issues we had, though, which I didn't honestly see coming because certainly the financial sector and every bank would say the same thing, succession is our number one risk when lending to farmers. Okay, They really put it up there, probably mm-hmm. above droughts now, easily. When we went in, and we we're pretty proud of ourselves, obviously, we developed this model and Dave and I had done all this stuff and we were both banking with the same retail bank at the time so which was fortunate we thought this is great we'll take it in we're going to jam all this stuff together how good is this going to be and we're going to have these lease agreements for the farms going across to the to the trading entity it's going to you know take all the risk and then obviously for sam and i for instance as owners of land we now had this lease arrangement where we could demonstrate to the bank this is how we're going to service our debts and repay them over a period of time like anyone who buys an investment property anywhere in the town or, or wherever. And so I thought this is a twofold win-win. However, when we got there and had the meeting, we were met with quite a, a trepidation is probably the word I'd use, and they really didn't take to it like I thought they might. And, and we had a lot of issues in those early days about 
the model and this separation of income and assets and how we'd push them apart and we weren't intertwining them. And how are we going to go when we had a poor seasonal conditions and we didn't have those assets to borrow against sitting behind it to fund the mm-hmm. next crop? And I said, well, we're going to do this and we're using ACL in those early days. We've developed multi-peril products in more recent times with a couple of overseas companies and that's that's ongoing, which has taken a lot of work, but but we're trying to continually mitigate risk. And the other thing, obviously, we've done is incorporated off-farm income streams into our into our farming business. But, Matt, when you're talking about a family asset, so let's ex- ex- um, elaborate your model a little bit into, let's say, most, well, not most, but a lot of family businesses are large. They have massive balance sheets now. Mm-hmm. And let's say they have two or three children, um, one or some or none might, might want to farm. But if they saw their farming business like this, a separate, there's a farming business and there's a farm ownership or a land ownership business. Retail property trusts work a little like this in, in urban areas. Like most businesses don't own the building that they run out of. They lease it and there's people who own buildings and there's people who lease buildings. So do you see the ability for uh, family farms, like in that case, to say, okay, we're, as a family, we own this asset base, which we will lease to the far- a farm business of which one of the children might run, or we also might use that balance sheet to leverage, you know, one of our other children into another business in town or in, the, in Sydney or Melbourne or Perth. This idea of leveraging the asset base for things other than farming as well? Absolutely, and and we've certainly done that. Like we've provided, Sam and I have provided capital to the business, obviously, in its initial stages through actual money or in those early days it was plant and equipment that we put into the asset register of the trust and in those certainly in those initial days we left the majority of the profits that the business made in it to allow the balance sheet of the business operating entity to grow to a reasonably substantial size now to sustain itself if and when, and it, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, we have poor seasonal conditions. The idea of mitigating risk in the income side of things is powerful. And also then you start to view your asset base differently. So Sam and I now use our asset base um, to buy things other than farmland, whether it be a unit in town or mm-hmm. a, a, you know, or you know, invest into a property trust or an off, you know, into another business stream which then allows our income streams to be mitigated at our level. DBA still has, has a farming interest and we still receive farming income through, those, through our distributions in the trust. But then personally, we get to use our balance sheet that is now leveraged to do other things other than just expand that business. So rather than resting on your own asset base to expand the business, is to harness capital outside of your own balance sheet to expand the farming business. Now, whether that be mm-hmm. an investor buying a block of land and simply leasing it to you or a, a company that's happy to provide working capital on a on an annual basis. Now, we have traditionally used banks for that type of working capital where they you know, overdraft type finance to buy fertiliser and chemical and the like. But we've now started to investigate the home office type equity markets and how do we access mm-hmm. that as risk capital for the business. Now, we've got the model to do it which is which is required due diligence of these of these companies is paramount and so they want to see structure and governance and all these type of things built around their investment yeah but the the capital that's out there now with interest rates being so low especially holding cash now is is a very low return basically non-existent 
And so they're looking for a risk profile within an acceptable range in different in different industries other than the traditional, we're going to buy a few shares in Rio Tino and get a dividend every year. But in saying that, Matt, you've got a structure that allows you to see different investors. So if you look at a traditional farm investment, most people would think, oh, okay, I'm investing in land or capital growth and production profit and the variability that comes with production. But what you're saying is you can approach people who've got different requirements in the context of their capital. So they can say, okay, I don't want to take any risk in the operation of farming, but I I love the capital growth in land. So you can say, okay, if you go and buy 5,000 hectares of land, I'll lease it off you for well, no, 10 years or 20 years yeah. or whatever. So you're going to get the growth you want, et cetera. So you get the land to expand. But also you might have other people who are willing to take, I suppose, the possibility of higher return but higher risk in investing in the operations side of the business. So you can actually have a lot more flexibility in the way you bring finance into the business. Is that how I understand it? Absolutely. And and obviously people's time frame and, and income horizons are all different. And obviously the working capital type of investment could be quite short term, as short as six months. Fund a crop, harvest the crop, there it is. Or it could be two years, three years, four years, pick your term. And on the land side, the general horizons are, are longer, five to ten, or even lifetime type assets, like your uh, PSPs of the world, you know, pension funds and the like are li- uh, lifetime investors. So they'll buy something and they, with the vision to never sell it, and it's just to provide an income stream to that fund. You've got- so they don't want to farm this, but they do want to own it. Yeah, yeah look, I mean, PSP do farm, they they um, have farming interests, they're board principal farming op- operations, so not a great example from that point of view. But in saying that, they fulfil both sides of the brief, if you like, if you know what I mean, and it would allow mm-hmm. any company to, to pick a side. Obviously, the banking sector have both facets provided to them by the family farm. So they've had this growth, this asset base provided to them as security and receded all the funds from the, from the trading side as well. And so... They, by default, had both streams to allow the business to propagate. Now, look, and it's been the cornerstone of growth for the majority of family farms. Like when it's going well, you've got profits to invest. When it's going poorly, hopefully the asset's still maintaining or increasing in value. And that was one of the things that happened in the 2000s. We had the combination of poor seasonal conditions and asset appreciation. Very unique in agriculture. It's the first time it had happened. Generally speaking, in Australia's history, you track asset valuation with droughts against rainfall and they just go together up and down whereas that broke away it decoupled the asset market just decoupled itself from production and off it went and it's remained outside of the we had massive asset growth here in 18 19 through that period and we grew absolutely nothing it Mm. is just totally decoupled itself so and obviously the investors see that and they go righto i want to invest in land but this Say you're pitching to to investor in, in eighteen nineteen, pitching a trading model that's just lost copious amounts of money is not a great idea, and probably not has a future. But yeah. you pitch, okay, I want you to buy land and lease it to me, and they go, oh, that's a great idea. And so, at the moment, after two good years, you know, returns on equity and stuff inside our business are way in double digits and and tremendous. And most investors would see that as a positive outcome in today's market where interest rates are so low. Yeah, I really love how you view investors as different though. Like you've got people who want stable return on capital type investment and your people who, you know, who are probably willing to fund working capital, but which has got a you know, there's got a high possibility of big upsides, but it has lately. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're a different type of person. I really like that viewing the the capital differently. 
because most people see them all in one bucket. They do, and and that's interestingly in our finance world, we it's it's like the last bastion. Like the I think most people, individuals in farming now do absolutely understand they're running both a, a real estate business and a farming business. And the way, especially with succession, the word again, is playing out where obviously the off-farm siblings see it very much as a real estate asset. Obviously, the people who are on the farm working away see it very much as an operating asset. And so the ability to separate the two, generally speaking, in a, in a succession resolution, one of the resolutions of the succession plan is how you're going to do that. How are you going to separate the income and assets so everyone gets what they want? In this case, have you explored this a bit further? So if you take the asset out of the succession equation, if you if you say what you've done, if you said the the land, the, the land business that's owned by the family, which is all siblings and mum and dad, mm-hmm. and you profit off that as you decide as a family. But the farm business can still be run by one or many of the siblings as a separate business entity and it has and it, that doesn't have to be divided or whatever. That can be just run as an independent business. But it doesn't mean you've got to, I suppose, apportion the land at all. That can still remain owned by the family. Absolutely. Um, so sort of, it's fulfilling both sides of the equation. And which, you know, as I said, the, one of the last bastions for, for, for agriculture to develop as an industry, I believe, is the ability of the finance sector to allow it to be separated and to be happy to fund one or the other. And rather than both, because coupling them together, what it does is restrict the people who farm uh, to the people who already have a farm and people from outside. So it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy and risk, isn't it? Well, (laughs) by making you couple them together, you know, like, so by, by a funder saying, well, you have to have both, it it almost perpetuates the problem of a succession risk for the bank, doesn't it? It, it does. And and they, they identify it as a massive risk, and rightfully so, yet complicity is a strong word, but by coupling them together has has bolted the problem to itself. Like if you can't unbolt it, how do you fix it? Yeah. And, and so what actually happens, you look at there's good succession outcomes and bad succession outcomes. Now, good succession outcome, it depends – I would imagine, and the ones I've been involved with, is very much who you're talking to, of who has had a good outcome. Win-win strategies mm. in succession planning with things bolted together are near on impossible. Someone's going to lose. They have to. You unbolt them, you decouple all this stuff and pull it apart, which can be difficult. And as intertwined family trusts and all the things that exist out there, propagated by, by the accounting fraternity in a lot, in a lot of times to, for, for tax, mm-hmm. tax planning purposes. So all these yep. things that have happened over the years now, there have very complex setups in, in a lot of these family businesses, um, far outside of what would exist in corporate land either, because they're, they're ungainly some of these things have been built on top of each other. Undoing those is very difficult, but at the end of the day, until you do it, it's still there. It's, it, these things don't fix themselves. It, it's like anything. you know. If there's rocks mm-hmm. sitting out in the middle of a paddock, they're not going to go away. If you want the rocks moved, you've got to go and pick them up and move them. That's the way it works. And so, yeah. and in, in well, like I always keep saying, Matt, hope's not a strategy. Hope is, is not a strategy. That's right. And I think for us as, a, as an industry, there's two things that happen for this is, is one that there are highly productive farms out there that are family farms. Some of the most productive farms, globally speaking, are family farms in, in any country, not just ours. Mm-hmm. And so because they are committed and focused and all the things that provide great foundations for great operating and functional businesses. 
and they trust each other because they're family, okay? But in saying that, the skill sets that exist in those businesses now may be precluding the next stage of increasing productivity because you only know what you know. So this is the thing, Matt. Yeah, family businesses. So um, I used to be a member, my wife and I used to be a member of a thing called Family Business Australia and they used to talk families who own businesses and families that are in business and they weren't the same thing. So this idea, so I want to sort of um, take this segue into talent. So you have this business which has this flexibility, that has this openness. How does that influence the the challenges that every farmer in Australia has at the moment, which is getting that talent, you know, attracting and retaining talent in in your farm business. And and how have you built some successful structures around that? Absolutely. Like you look at obviously staff retention now, you'd see it in your business, I see it in our business, is is number one priority for management. So getting good staff, procuring good staff and then keeping them. Okay, because we all know the good staff create good businesses. Okay, so how do you keep, how do you get a lifetime employee? I, I think the days in for the fifty to seventy year old bracket, which I sit in, is that I've had three jobs in my life, and that's two more than most other people my age. Okay, so they've worked mm-hmm. a full entire career in one job, and they've and they've been ha- salary earners. They don't own any of the business, but happy doing that. And but in today's world, I pick up a twenty-seven-year-old's resume, and they've already had seven jobs. And they would say to you, and 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 rightfully so, that they're expanding their skill set, gaining expertise in different businesses, and are now a much more rounded employee because they have this set of skills and this rounded education, both at, at at a university and then in their job career. So you employ them. But what actually happens is you then just become the eighth one on the list in a very short period of time. And now there are more rounded employees for the next one. And so it goes. So how do you break the mould? How do you take that person who is thinking they're building themselves, and they are, absolutely, you read the resume, it goes, great resume. And yet for the business, I know by employing that person who's had seven jobs in seven years, probably means that in in a year's time, we're going to be number eight on the list because history does tend to repeat itself. Mm -hmm. And so how do you break that mould? Well, you give ownership. So you need to have the model to allow ownership in the business, to be on the table, earned, but on the table and paramount in the employment structure. So all people that start in this business, it is discussed openly at the interview process that ownership is on the table for every employee. Now, not every employee wants to own a business, and that's fine. That's great. If, but if you do, it's right there, and you just need to put your hand up and then go through the process of walking through that door. We recently added a one of our farm managers um, who, interestingly, is a bricklayer by trade, worked on dairy farms, and then ended up applying for a farm manager's job with us. He has successfully completed that role for the last two years and then indicated this year that he'd love to be in ownership, and his wife recently um, gained the support of all the other unit holders, and they are now owners in the business as of the 1st of July this year. And so, out. Matt, you're not able to get in that, that unique talent and keep it. And you're talking about that business structure again. You know, because they're not essentially taking any ownership over the asset, they're just they're, they're becoming owners of the operating business. It's a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper, absolutely. It's not cheaper. It still requires <laughs> money, but but we afford yep. equity loans and, and things to make, make it easier in that transition. And, so, and this is where the accounting model comes yeah, in. Yeah, the Matt. accounting model helps here a lot. 
And so the business can go righto. And generally speaking, what we do in our world is we don't sell any of our units. We issue additional units. So every time we take on an additional unit holder of 5%, 7% or whatever the percentage is, all the current unit holders' ownership reduces by the pro rata amount. So you end up Mm -hmm. owning a smaller part of the pie by allowing this. But now why would we do that? Especially when you're not making any money, it's easy to give it away. But when you're making money in the last two years, it's a big thing to bring on a new unit because you're giving away that profitability. So what are the pros? Well, the pros are, well, the cons are easy to identify because you're giving away profitability. That's the big con. The pros are, obviously, you're securing intellectual property for a lifetime Mm -hmm. or till the point in time when their goals change. Now, when goals change for any employee, they become less effective. We all know that. Okay, so you employ Mm -hmm. someone as an accountant. In five years' time, they're no longer going to be an accountant. They're probably not going to be a great accountant. And what this does, it gives a very structured way on these people exiting both their career and ownership, which is much more consumable for the business than people just resigning and giving four weeks' notice. And so we find with the, the people who have exited, there's a there's a process in the way that happens. It's, it's reasonably regimented these days, which is great. And it gives the business time to adjust to that IP and capital removing itself from the business. But to get back to why why is it better than just employing someone and retaining all the profit by the existing unit holders other than the IP is that it it ingrains more trust people in ownership mm. it's a trust model and especially in farming where we're working remotely independently with an absolute plethora of subjective decisions to be made so that skin in the game, Matt, says when they walk out into the paddock and they say they're going to spray tomorrow and they're on a farm wherever, miles away, as a, as a unit holder, they walk into that paddock as an owner, not as an employee. So if they see something that's not quite right or they might just stop and go, okay, I think we'll take a think here. Is that what you're sort Absolutely. of alluding to? It's that amongst all the other decisions. So one of the parallels I draw is, you get a staff member on a bonus system aligned to yield, okay? So which, there's a lot of bonus structures in farming built around yield, which is an annual thing. So they're out mm-hmm. farming away and decisions are made in season to maximise the yield. Is that the best thing mm-hmm. for business? Now, anyone who's done Economics 101 would know the law of diminishing rate of return is not maximum. You do not achieve the highest rate yeah. of return, maximising yield. Yet, we have a bonus structure built around that. So is that going to be in the best interest of the business or not? So people who act as owners in a trading model act in the best return on equity space, not the maximum yield space. Now, I know as farmers, we, you know, the, they keep the, the media and so on and, and governments keep telling us we need to produce more food. We've got to feed more people. So we do need to maximise yield. However, we need you to be viable and we can't provide assistance. So there's this conflict Interesting in economics, which one is yeah. right? So, but it bring it well, back. I think to- there's a there's a worldview and there's a, there's a business view, isn't there, Matt? Yeah. Right. So sure. it's the world wants you to grow more food, but essentially, as a business, your first responsibility is not feeding the world; it's it's profit. Well, we um, have to remain so to remain open. If we're not if we're not viable, yeah, so you can't feed the world unless you're profitable. That's right. If we don't make you know and maximizing yeah. yield, we all know that if you just keep maximizing yield out, at the end of the curve, is you make a loss. Because diminishing rates of return happen in farming. Yeah, I think there's a, 
I can't remember another another conference I was at about 20 years ago. There's an accountant from New Zealand, and he coined that term in the conference. I think it's not was his. It was that uh, was it. Yield is vanity, and profit is sanity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you look at how how it plays out in our in the environment, and 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 I mean, peer group pressure is alive and well in farming. There's no doubt about that, and especially when it comes to say nitrogen applications, it is an obsession. And, and sometimes regard for the economics is thrown clean out the window on the basis that, you know, this is what we should do. So we go throwing the white stuff around and, and try and grow as much as possible because it's going to rain and everything's going to be great. And so the harsh reality of farming, though, in, in an operating-only model is that that's not tolerable. And so the discipline that we've found in this business, and it's a, I find myself adhering to it now much more freely than I used to, is that you provide the structure and so the framework of what we're trying to achieve here, what are we actually trying to grow? Target yields and so on are, are something that people talk about, mm. but subscription to it is, is harder again, especially when it's wet. So it starts raining and say you target at a four-ton yield, but now it's wet, well, we should grow five. And, you know, because we can't leave any yeah. money on the table, it gets used a lot in agriculture. And so, yeah, it's... But it's at risk, isn't it? But do you have those honest discussions with the other unit holders? Because it's just not you. Do you keep each other a lot more accountable? I mean, it's like, let's say it was just you and your wife farming, Matt, and you might get a rush of blood to the head and go, man, I'm just going to go double down on nitrogen and go for it here. Go hard. And you haven't gone and reviewed your budget and you haven't looked at your margins and you might be actually just pouring money <laughs> onto the paddock. Hey, um, look, that happens. You know, so does having other other people in the business help keep each other accountable on that to go, hey, Matt, pull your head in. We're here to make some money. You know, does that help having those formal structures with other owners? It, it is because especially when some of those owners are not in this business, are not involved in the farming business. They're involved in our off-farm businesses. It is interesting when you talk to people who don't farm and you tell them what you do because the crux of what we do is take a whole heap of money, stick it in the ground, and wait for it to rain, which is something we mm. can't control and hope it doesn't get frosted or eaten by mice or locusts and all the other things that happen. And then at the end of the year, sell it for a price we can't control. Now, you explain that to someone who works in industry other than agriculture and they'll go, you're out of your tree doing that. Don't do it. That's madness. The risk profile is off the charts. And so controlling risk is one of the cornerstones. So we have a plan and we constructed a plan on the page and put all our thoughts and what we're trying to achieve in this business back in 2015 on a page, and we still adhere to it today, actually. It was a great process. And so it allows us to go, righto, what is acceptable risk to this business? What, what actually is it? Mm -hmm. and, and because the maximising yield model we know is not going to give us maximum returns. We know that. We don't have to guess that. So where, is, so where do we sit in the risk profile? Therefore, where is our our sweet spot where we're taking enough risk to make a profit and remain viable without throwing the baby out with the bathwater if things don't quite play out as you hope they would in the middle of August when you're driving a spread around at 3 o'clock in the morning. So how do you how often do you review that plan with the other business partners? Every, right? every year. No, I'm talking about financials. Oh. So I'm talking about during the year, right? So we, we commit – so like every farmer, you're committing millions up front. You're pouring into the ground. And in this is in the grain business, obviously, but in, in livestock, it's usually a little bit more capital intensive in other areas. But let's just go with the grain model here. And then you have got these nine months of huge uncertainty, weather, commodity prices, you know, disease, a whole lot of stuff that can go on. 
how often do you tactically review that you know that financial model that plan you know with the other partners in the business as that growing season goes on yeah look we probably three times during the year obviously pre so budgets are approved to to allow the, the crop to be sown and with a target yield in mind and then it's up to the individual business unit manager like each of the farm managers to stay within the within the number Obviously, things can be moved around, mm-hmm. but they've got to stay inside the number. Otherwise, the business will run out of money. Absolutely. And then during the year, mm-hmm. the tax office lovely you know, make us work in quarters. So there's always these quarter budget, you know, which is great. So once you've done the bears, you've got these set of numbers to review. We review them against the budget. Obviously, any outliers, the bank's keen to hear why they're outliers. The other unit holders are also they're yep. furnished with these figures. And then, obviously, they've got questions. If you know, we look at a 15% variation as a trigger point. So if we've got a 15% variation in any component of the budget, mm-hmm. it needs to be explained. And so we do that and then... So if you don't run a budget to actual comparison report, you look at a 15% variable. So let's say you run a budget to actual comparison report against your, against your numbers and you look down those numbers, which is a huge sheet of numbers usually when you run that report, and you go, okay, just look for a 15% variable and we'll drill down on those. Yep. And, and look, to be fair... You can do it by individual line item or as a group, cropping expenses, sheep expenses, overhead expenses. You can group them up. And one of the mitigants can be is that obviously if you've had a lower fertiliser cost and a higher chemical cost or vice versa, they level each other out. And it can be as simple as that. And so, But the point is that the people around us, and and obviously people who aren't farming, who aren't aren't, possibly addicted to urea like some of us croppers are, look at at it and go – but we didn't want to take that risk. We didn't want to take that much yeah. risk. We were happy at the profitable level of this level of risk. And so one of the big challenges for this business over, especially since it's begun to rain in the east here, is that is adhering to that risk profile that we set for ourselves. And we do that at the start. And, yeah. But one of the great things about it is as a farmer, like we're all time poor and we make ourselves time poor by going, right, oh, we're going to do this set of activities and then it rains and then we go, oh, we'll do this other set of activities that were unscheduled and we make yeah. ourselves very busy. Like last year, for instance, when we, when we completed our nitrogen program as per plan, that was it. We stopped. Yeah. We- so, And that's that discipline, Matt. So do you do you work on a margin? So like you said, it's not just yield. It's yield times price minus cost will give you a gross margin less your overheads, right? So. You work on a. Do you work on a break-even point for your enterprises, or so when you're making that decision of at what point will we stop pouring on fertilizer, or what point will we not spray out weeds, or all those sorts of decisions? Are they based on a break-even point or your hedging facility? So how do you make that decision to protect margin? Probably first and foremost, we look at at using rainfall fears. Obviously, moisture is our biggest limiting factor. Okay. So we look yep. at, okay, we use a decile for rainfall figure and go and a water use efficiency figure for our crops that's tried and true that we have all this data and go, right, oh, we grow 18 kilos per effective millimetre of rain per for wheat and about 8.5 of canola, roughly speaking. Mm-hmm. And so you go, what is our decile for average rainfall for, for this property in this location? Right, oh, that's where we're going to target the yield. And so because for the non-farming unit holders who are acutely aware that makes most sense to them because they go, righto, moisture is our biggest limiting factor. We all know that. So how are you setting the target yield aligned to this big variable that we can't control? And you go, right, yep. we've got this. 
So then how do you yeah. make all the other decisions, right? You go, well, we're targeting a three-and-a-half-ton crop on this particular property. Okay, and then you build below that. So we've got the rainfall in a, you know, in a decile fall range, you know, just below average if you like. It's a bit conservative. And then go, right, so what's the soil test say? How much nitrogen do I need to, to create this target yield? And you can then build yep. the variables you can control to that rather than go, I'm going to take all this yeah. nitrogen and target a four-ton yield and hope, and there it is again, a decile seven rainfall to make it happen. And because when... Yeah, so you're actually planning for an outcome, not just throwing all the money on red and hoping for an outcome. Yeah, look, and I think, yeah, subconsciously everyone does it, but we can, especially when good conditions prevail, we can get caught up in the moment. And and the other the other thing I've learned through my life in farming some of our best financial years have been the year after a good year. And one of the reasons that is, if you're yeah. disciplined in a target yield and our ability to maintain moisture, so retain moisture in the profile. And so if you utilise all the moisture every year in the ground, then you start the year, the next year with none. Now, people would say that's maximising yield because yeah. you've used it all up, all good. And then you start the next year with zero, which inherently increases the risk it just does so whereas if we go right we're happy at this so it's thinking beyond the rotation well if we have to so this is why the decile it's like thinking through the rotation yeah so the decile four thing came about i did a bit of training in statistics and so if we target below average because as we know averages exist for a reason if we do that in our cropping program we'll always leave a percentage of moisture in the ground on average we just will because we are not targeting to take it all out. If we targeted decile five, we would by default over a lifetime take all the moisture out. We'd leave nothing there. And so by doing decile four targets, so, we'd leave a bit there. I think it's brilliant, Matt. I think it's really good. So there's a lot we can learn from this in the context. Yes, you, you like all other farmers in Australia, face this risk that everybody faces all year. You know, you're putting it all on the ground, but it's about being disciplined about how you spend and when you spend. And yes, you're human like everybody else. And I mean, you're allowed to put an extra two laps of um, urea on the outside of the front paddock if you really need to. Absolutely. Um, all our farm uh, managers are allowed to go to the doctor <laughs> in one paddock. It, it, it is. It's a natural instinct. And so we're not we're not precluding ourselves. So everyone's allowed not huge paddocks, but certainly there is you can you find in the crop comp in a paddock for sure, no doubt about it. The one in the front drive has got to be bright has, green. Absolutely it? has to be. And and look, I think, yeah, it and, and so the, the point is obviously when you look at the other side of the equation, if you're not a farmer and I'm coming and sitting in front of you, Dave, to go, right, I want you to invest in this farming model. Obviously, your capital mm. is is paramount. So preservation of capital, there's return and there's preservation of capital. These are the investors' two cornerstones. Mm. So they turn up and they go, right, what's what's my perspective yield, my perspective yield of my investment? And you put it up and you go, we're going to, you know, our history shows, you know, that we produce 15 16 17% return on equity and, you know, oh, yes, and everyone's getting excited. Then you have to answer the question, so how much can I lose? How much capital can I actually lose if I invest yeah. in growing a wheat crop? And unfortunately, the answer is all of it. And you, you can't answer the question any yeah. other way. And I think the reality is, Matt, is there going to be one year, everyone knows it, There, it has happened before and it will happen again. It may not be this year, it may not be next year, but there's going to be a year where you will lose it all. And I think mm. that's the reality. Yeah. yeah, and look, we did a lot of modelling with insurance companies in developing multi-year, multi-peril products to try and traverse the one-year issue. And when we modelled 
actually um, about 60 years worth of data locally here from various places. What it showed, and we reverse engineered by using your profit and pushed it backwards, like all the data we had, and pushed it all backwards through the system. And what we found is that if you do a three-year investment horizon, there was only one time in the 60 years worth of data that you would have lost more than would have not returned capital. Okay, there was certainly plenty of periods where you might have just got your yep. money back. However, there was this yep. one period, and, and which surprised me a little. I thought there'd be more, to be honest. And so what we did in, the, in what we're trying to achieve, which we did, is we ran a multi-year product, multi-year multi-curl, and it encompassed the years from 18, 19, and 20. Okay, so in 18, bad year, 19, worse year, and we had this massive outstanding what you call contingent claim because this multi-peril product had been built for the three years in aggregate. And so what happened in 2020 is that amazingly we wiped out all the contingent claim from the previous two years and actually put the model, put the aggregate amount of revenue for the three years in front of the amount of the product plus premium. So it actually returned over and above the amount that was paid in premium as a stock guard, and obviously the, the amount that we'd insured for the three years, which was set to the cost of production. So, Matt, what I'm taking from this, yeah, so what I'm taking from this, again, let's go back to the, the model with EBAG. Because you have separated the operations and, and ownership in this way, it's made you think about managing risk in a very different way because you can't, well, you, I suppose there's a bit nuanced here, but in, in, like most family farms, you can't go, okay, if it all goes wrong, we lay it all down, and if it goes wrong, we can't fall back on our balance sheet as, as easily. So you have to think about risk in a lot more technical or creative way. One, you've got investors who don't know anything about farming, so you need to be able to explain the decisions you've made. But also you just don't have that land price balance sheet to fall back on. No, it, and that's and because that was, well, certainly, and I did it too. I just went, well, 2002, I've lost money. The land we'd bought in 2001, to start farming in 2002, it had actually gone up. It actually doubled in that year. And that was the initial decoupling of these things. And so the bank just gave us more money and off we went. And we literally doubled down. In 2003, yep. we lost it again. Land had gone up and we did it again. And we were just digging this hole. And But our balance yeah. sheet still looked fine, but our operating entity looked like a, a disaster zone. And so, yeah, you're right. Like, and so the, the ability to assess risk, because we're not going, right, oh, we've got this balance sheet to land back on, so therefore we can have exponential risk is probably what you're getting at. Like we, if you have a massive balance sheet and a real appetite for risk, then you can continually set for decile eight, nine years, and every now and then you're going to be right. Yeah. And but in the years you're wrong, it doesn't matter, okay, because the, the show doesn't get bought undone. The DBAG model, the show gets bought undone if we do that. So if we roll the dice on, okay, it needs to rain cats and dogs for us to get out of trouble here and, and create the returns that we all expect, then in 18, well, you know, pick any, any of probably 60% of the years we've had over the or 70% probably over the last 12 years since we've been in action, and the, and the show's over. Like it just gets bought undone because there's nothing there. But the thing is, Matt, you've because you face that risk, you've – and you've got investors who, you know, you know, you're going to get every now and then. Some farmers are going to willing to go that all or nothing model, and you've you've seen there's we've got lots of clients like this, and there's plenty of farmers you've seen them in your district, you yeah. know. And every now and then they can go big. Um, 
but not everyone is that person. So what I'm understanding from the DBAG model is you've built this sustainable return model. Yes, you've still got the risk of farming that people from outside farming are willing to invest in or be part of. Yeah, and because, you know, as I said, the, the failing of our finance sector to fund income-only models, uh, we, okay, as, as hard as, as we've tried, and, and to some degree of success, I've got to say, with our current bankers, um, but the ability to expand our model outside ourselves or to help people, you know, get into farming that otherwise aren't farming, one of the key components of that mm. is if there's this set of investors happy to, and there is now obviously a very established land investor market now, um, raising money to to buy land now is actually not that difficult. All you got to do is say, I'll lease the land from you and, and the queue forms to the right. And so because people see the, yep. the returns that have been available in that space. So, But what is hard is re- raising working capital to then go and farm this asset you don't own. And so I see that market as, as needing structure and rigour. And one of the cornerstones of that is going to be managing risk, obviously, because the people who are going to provide capital to that, while they're aggressive, they still want capital to be preserved. And, and so the risk model that's run is going to be paramount. Hmm. So, Matt, your advice, just to uh, finish off a bit, there's a couple of things. So you've got – I'm interested in your advice for two types of people. One, you've got, you know, your standard family farm. So we're, we're going through quite a succession um, event at the moment. Um, so I'd say generally, I, I, I suppose I hate to use the word, but this millennial generation, about what, they're about 30, in their mid-30s who are starting to take over farm businesses all over Australia, right? And, again, and, I, and so families are facing these challenges that your family's face and every other family's face. Um, plus, you've got their peers in the city who have always wanted a farm and have gone to Sydney Uni or to Muresk or Marcus Holm or whatever, and they want to they wanna get into So what's, what's some tips you might have for those people getting into farming and what you've learned and how to maybe think about this whole challenge differently? I think it is, I think the space of the the private equity market is, is coming back to the forefront of available capital. So what we saw in the 80s with high interest rates is that the private equity fell into equities and, and bonds pretty much. Like it all just housed itself in there. The returns are quite good, you know, double digits, you know, deposits and all this sort of thing. Obviously, with the lowering of interest rates and where we see them today, what's happened is this accumulation of wealth is now searching for higher risk activities to allow a higher return. And so we've gone mm-hmm. from it being very hard to find to not easy to find, but certainly available if you're willing to put yourself out there. And then it's obviously getting that market to develop to a point where the finance sector is. So one of my advice to, to anyone who's going into farming now is that you need very much a strategy to exit. Anyone who starts any business must think about the end. And I think in farming, we tend to, we get very excited about production and, and these type of things without our, without not, not considering, but not really putting it at the front of our mind to go, righto, this could all come undone and what's actually going to happen? What will happen if this all comes undone on me? And I look back at on when we started, I didn't consider it was going to, as I said earlier, I just thought success was a given. I just did. It was fine. Mm. I knew what I was doing. I'm all good. Yeah. And then Murphy's Law just got me good and proper. 
And and because things outside my control and some things that I did control were wrong and my goals were wrong and my targets were therefore wrong. I look at the way we farm now, which you would say in this district would be considered conservative for sure, but our outcomes, we are targeting where we're going. So anyone who's starting out in farming and if you are going to go on site and to a private investor, you, you have to be able to answer the two questions. What is a sustainable return and how are you preserving capital? These two questions have to be answered. Otherwise, mm. any investor worth their salt is going to walk away from it. And banks are a different beast. Um, unfortunately, they the risk capital is there, providing you've got a big lumpy asset to, to secure it against. For a few, is available, but not for everyone. And so, and you're dead right. So the guy... But it's a healthy question, aren't they? Mm. Absolutely. Like, They're healthy questions anyway, aren't they, Matt? Like, so if you are, even if you didn't need the money, you know, I love those two questions. What is your sustainable return and how do you preserve capital? Even if you're not looking for investment, they're great questions to answer for yourself, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, you look at the Royal Commission into Banking and if you happen to have a bit of light reading to do at night and wade through the document, but, the, but one of the things it says in there is that banks had been not great at assessing serviceability and repayment, okay? so And they then put all these uh, additional covenants in their, in their banking licence to make them assess their customers' ability to service and ability to repay. And actually, interestingly, those two things are average return and preservation of capital. It's the same thing, just dressed up in a different suit. Yeah. And so they're worthy questions and, and, and there was a lot of, you know, negativity around the Royal Commission and and some of the things that have happened in agribusiness lending and, and people, you know, banks demanding budgets of people and all this type of stuff. But realistically, anyone running a business and, and actually explaining themselves and being accountable and responsible to a third party should be doing that anyway, even if it's to themselves. Yeah. And and as you say, these yeah. are worthy questions and, and I didn't make them up. Like they're, they're things that, you know, people say – and some would say, especially, you know, it could be deemed lip service to a point where they're going, you know, you must repay the debt in seven years or whatever the time frame is. And, but in the back of the mind, you're just going, well, the asset's going to go up, so it won't matter if I don't pay it back anyway. It's all good. Because, um, you know, possession of farms and mortgagee and possession and all the bad things that happen when things go wrong are really hard to affect, especially in New South Wales. It's really tough um, laws sitting around, you know, mortgagee and possession type of behaviour mm-hmm. by, by institutions. And so we've created this market where, you know, it, it's it's been very much self-fulfilling that it'll be all right. Everything will be all right no matter what happens. But as new, but if you I, looked at your business as if you were the lender, you would you would be pretty attractive to a lender, I'd imagine, Matt. So if you, I mean, you're looking, you're saying those questions are good. We're talking about good questions anyway, yeah? So they're, but if you... If you were lending the money to yourself, which is what a lot of people are doing, mm. in fact, if they're putting retained profit into their business, you know, if that wasn't you, what would you expect? That's right. You oh, know, yeah. you'd expect That's the capital and we are. reserved. We, you, like yeah. Sam and I, like it, we, you know, we haven't put a lot of actual physical cash into the business, but we've left a lot of retained profits in there. And we very much do care how the business engages that. And as this business has expanded and with with reasonably solid size off-farm businesses now. We've got wholesale businesses and, and a few different things these days. And I'm very much, I, I do want to see the strategy, you know, the business, the director, who the, the executive director who runs that side of the business, 
Richard, I do want him to present the strategy and how our money is being engaged and what the returns are, you know, because I'm not involved. Yeah. And, and, and I know what's happening in the farming world because I'm the executive director of, of farming in, in our business and, and I'm very much across that and, and very much familiar. But on a daily basis, I, I'm just assuming there's people at work in there at the moment as we speak. You know, I'm just assuming they're there. I yeah. didn't check. And so I do care what they're doing. But that's trust again, isn't that it? That it is. And, and, so, and, and that's, been, that's a big challenge for a lot of farmers because, look, we all like to be aware and in control of what's going on in our business. And, and some of people are you know, a bit of obsessive, compulsive type behaviour, if you like, you know, where we're, we want to know everything and um, because we see so many risks in every decision we make in farming. We know that if this little thing's done wrong, it can turn into something big. And so if a seed dressing doesn't get put yeah. on a seed, we know the ball smuck and level an oat crop, right? And so we're very acutely aware of the exponential risk that are attached to very small activities. Micromanagement is a word that gets used a little bit um, for people that behave like that, and that's the trust thing. And so one of the reasons family farms, as we've talked about before, are more successful than a lot of corporates is because, they're, generally speaking, family members trust each other. And so, therefore, they become a better yep. functional team and therefore perform better. Not because they, they work hard, everyone works hard. I know people who work for corporates and they work just as hard as anyone else. And so that's not it. So why do they perform better as a team? Well, they're a more functional team. And generally speaking, that's because they trust people. But I think that's what you – yeah, to, to wrap this up um, is, Matt, the – so but that's what you've been able to preserve. You've got essentially – a, a model that allows you to attract and bring in capital and bring people from outside the family into the business and you have multiple families in the business but at the same time you've maintained that trust and that that that, that dynamic that a family business has you know it's not a full corporate model where you've just got matt the big owner and a bunch of employees you've got the best of both worlds i suppose is how i see you've put this model together you have this model that allows you to some of the advantages of say a corporate but also all the advantages of a family farm. You know, Absolutely. So, so like, and as you would, it, would have heard me say in Fremantle, collaboratise and corporatise. We want both. I think one of the, the keys, key messages for me to anyone out there who's looking to get into farming is that if you don't have access to a, to a big chunky asset to allow you to, to farm away on, on the back of you know, mum and dad or grandfather or, or grandmothers or wherever the asset may be sitting, is that it's not impossible it's just a different path. And I think for most people, it, it, when you sort of get into it, it does appear just insurmountable. The numbers are huge. Like, you know, a, a tractor's yeah. 350 grand and all these type of things. And, and you look at the uh, good farmers and they seem to have one of or two of everything. How am I possibly going to get to that? Mm. It's, it's doing simple things well, and, but obviously it's a slow burn. Farming has seen, been seen to be a windfall-type operation in the past. But I was talking to a guy who owns a tyre shop yesterday and he said, what I didn't realise when I went into the tyre industry, I was going to make a profit in a lifetime, not in a year. And I thought... And I think that's the reality of every business. And I think this is what we maybe have learnt with age because, Matt, I was like you. I left university thinking farming was just like, I mean, I mean I'd done the budgets. So it's going to be easy, you know, um, and it never really worked out like no, that. Um, no. But, you know, well, I'm going to make a fortune in this farming mm -hmm. thing. Um, but you're right. But if you approach it as uh, uh, this, 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 
thing you're saying, Matt, it's a lifetime worth of profit, not a annual sort of profit. Yeah. You may have some massive years, but if you look at your your um, fortune, let's call it that, over it's a lifetime fortune, not an annual fortune. Mm. Yeah, Absolutely. And one of the things that's happened for Sam and I, quite interestingly, is that I look at our wealth now, like our personal balance sheet, and over the journey, 50% of our wealth is absolutely assets going up in value, land, whether that be residential, farming, doesn't matter. But 50% of our wealth is wealth that we've created through profit. And so it's, it's an interesting thing that the model has forced us to focus on profitability, which in a 12-year in a stretch or 13-year stretch has actually now equaled the capital gain we've had in a 20-year stretch. It's it's quite an and I don't know how common that was. That, that that's really amazing. That is really amazing. Now I want to finish off, Matt, with one last question for you, and it's nothing to do with farming. Well, it might do to farming. <laughs> um, I always ask people when they finish this: is when you're not obsessing about farming, and nearly everyone I interview, even them in the agribusiness, mm -hmm. <laughs> what do does Matt and his family do when they're not farming, talking about farming, planning about farming? Um, I drag them to cricket games, amazingly. Um, I love cricket. <laughs> I've been a coach for many years, played played a, a lifetime, and um, yeah, my wife has spent many, many, many days sitting at um, grounds around New South Wales in the, in the heat watching games of cricket, and then I made our kids do it, and now we go and watch my son play, and, um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's been an obsession for me, no doubt about that. I love it, and I love the game, and I love – and I love the fact, and probably as I've got older, I've loved the fact that being involved in something outside farming stops me working and does allow that breathing space and that clear air that you just so badly want when you're buried under whatever it is you're doing. And when you have to be somewhere because you're a part of a team or providing you know, coaching support or whatever it is as a part of a team, and you have to go. You've made the commitment and you're going, and it's not something you can put off because it's going to happen. And so for me, well, I love the game. I love the competitive outcome and it's a good competitive release. Um, but I love the fact that it clears my mind for – and good thing about cricket, it goes for an entire day. Like it's tremendous or, you know, a couple of days even. <laughs> but, but that's what we get up to. And then it's like two days of meditation, is, isn't it? And, and uh, my kids are sports obsessed, netball, AFL, all those things, tennis, you name it, they play it. And which we've propagated that ourselves. We've made those beasts. And – but um, – but it's a great outlet and, and does – and it, the other thing it does for you, it's, there's a social component to all this. We're very isolated in our work worlds, whereas you head off to the local footy game and you know, there's people there from the opposition, people you don't meet every day. And obviously there's – like I'll go – I went to a wedding that was in Brisbane the other week and it's the first time I saw my neighbour for over three months. Like I could nearly hit a three-iron to his house. I had to go a 1,000 kilometres to actually have a beer with him. Like it's madness. And so – yeah, so sport yeah. is sport is our family obsession outside of uh, outside of farming, and um, and I should uh, be remiss if I didn't give my wife a plug here. She has a manufacturing business. She makes um, salad dressing for a living, amazingly, and uh, has done for the last wow. last fifteen years. She has a factory here on the farm. So, PSD, Google it, and um, tastes great. You can order it online. So. No, it's uh, it was, oh, good plug, mate. You're like a power couple. <laughs> it's been a, look. I got to tell you, Dave. I've been reflecting when you asked me to do this, and and it's been a ride. Uh, I would not have imagined where we've got to today. Even though you have these things in your mind, 
of what you think it's going to look like and where we've got to and what it now looks like and what I think it might look like in 10 years' time. Um, but it's been, and I, as with all things, and people say to you all the time, don't worry about the goal, just enjoy the ride. And, and I've enjoyed the ride. Now, it's had ups and downs, but it's all been entertaining. And as wise men always say, if you enjoy your job, you'll never work a day in your life. Brilliant, Matt. I think that's an absolutely brilliant place to leave it. And um, thank you very much for your time. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster Farm Business Management Software and Services, you can find us at www.agrimaster.com.au or find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. If you like this episode, please share it on social media or directly with a friend. And let's make farm business great together.